Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This episode has a slightly different setup from what you may be used to when listening to Foodie Pharmacology. This interview is part of a series that I did in collaboration with the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. In this series, I talk to different experts about the trends they observe in plants that are important to our agriculture, diets, and health. I hope you enjoy. The bottom line of all this has to be we've got to continue to feed people. We cannot lose sight of that. However, I think the the big elephant in the room at the moment has to be climate change and how we can breed crops and adapt our agriculture to um, to meet the new conditions, I think, is the number one challenge that, that uh, agriculture is facing at the moment and, and in which plant breeding, I think, is, is, can make a major contribution, obviously not the only thing, but a major contribution to, to, to solving that. Hello, this is Dr. Cassandra Quave presenting Treaty Talks, a podcast by the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. In this series, I'm discussing trends with experts in crop production, research, and gastronomy. This series reflects on Plants That Feed the World, a study and database presenting figures on plants that are important to humans' diet, health, and livelihoods on a global scale. Today, we're speaking with Jeff Houghton. Jeff is a world-renowned authority in the conservation and utilization of plant genetic resources. Jeff, what can you um, share with us? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Yeah, well, I spent all my life working in agricultural research and particularly in plant breeding and and the uh, conservation of genetic resources, which are the resources that underpin uh, uh, the breeding work and the improvement of uh, new varieties. I've headed up two international research centers, um, Biodiversity International in Rome and the International Center for Tropical Agriculture in Colombia. I was also the founding director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust. Um, so my whole life really has been spent in um, in various aspects of agriculture for development. That's great. So what have been some of your key objectives in your work? I mean, you've, you've spent many decades um, in this field what have been some of the main points or driving forces? I started working in this field in the early 1970s as a plant breeder. And at the time, there was the beginning really of the of the Green Revolution. Now, the Green Revolution was the intro, uh, introduction of, of new wheat and rice varieties that led to dramatic increases in productivity of these crops around the world, but particularly in Asia and, and, and Latin America. Um, this, these new varieties had been bred, so the wheat in, in Mexico and, and rice in the Philippines, um, to be more responsive to, to fertilizers and, and to, to inputs. But as a result, yields were in many cases uh, more than doubled. And what it turned a situation that in the 1960s, there were major global concerns about uh, famine in India, for example, and in Africa. And it really turned the situation around such that these these famines that had been predicted uh, never actually took place. However, there were some uh, sort of negative effects of the the Green Revolution as well, and these were recognized very early on. The um, 
increased use of fertilizer, for example, that was required by these new varieties led to um, people thinking about, well, there's a need for research on crops that are going to perhaps reduce the need for fertilizer. And that's where um, a lot of the, the food legumes, the pulses, beans and peas and things uh, came in. And so when I started as a plant breeder, it was in fact on these crops uh, in some way to complement the impact of the Green Revolution varieties, recognizing that that environmental impacts of the Green Revolution, but also nutritional impacts uh, were important and that the, the legumes uh, are, in fact, a very good source of protein, uh, which was also of great concern around the late 60s and, and early 70s. So we have almost a bigger problem today in, in, in looking forward in feeding the world as we've ever had with expected increases in population of at least another billion mouths to feed. But we have to do that against the backdrop of climate change. And what does that mean for agriculture? It means having to cope with higher temperatures, having to cope with uh, perhaps less rainfall or longer periods of drought, or in some cases, perhaps more rainfall in, in heavy doses leading to flooding. Um, and of course, this in turn leads to a very different um, spectrum of, of pests and, and insects and diseases so that uh, the sort of uh, crops that we've grown traditionally, that uh, many of which are quite resistant to some of these pests and diseases, are not necessarily resistant to the new ones that are coming in as a result of climate change. So we've got, a, 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 I would say, as, as big a problem as, as ever as we faced uh, back 50 years ago, but we, the, uh, the conditions under which we're, we have to address and, and come up with the solutions are dramatically different and, I would argue, more difficult. I know you've done a lot of work also in restorative agriculture and and kind of how does that play into this? Is restorative agriculture the same as regenerative agriculture? Um, can you kind of break down those concepts for us? Well, yes. I mean, regenerative agriculture is is really an attempt to 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 right the wrongs, if you like, of of, of agriculture of the last fifty years. Agriculture resulted in a loss of topsoil or, or a degradation of topsoil. So re regenerative agriculture is trying to to restore that topsoil, res restore the, the fertility uh, uh, at, at both uh, the quantity and the quality of that topsoil. It's trying to um, restore biodiversity. We've lost huge amounts of, of, of biodiversity off our farmlands over the last 50 years. Farming methods, restorative, um, regenerative farming methods, aim to reintroduce biodiversity and, and build it build it back up again. So, in other words, it's 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 trying to feed the world, trying to feed the world in the face of climate change, while at the same time trying to bring uh, the environment in which agriculture operates back to something in a, a more sustainable than we have at present. Well, let's talk a little bit about the crop metrics study. First, can you tell us what was the study about and what are some of the major um, things that, that, are, that are coming out of this study? Well, I, th I think, I mean, to me, the study was, was extremely interesting in that it looked at such a wide range of crops, some 355 different crop, uh, crop species, of which I think it's sort of 337 were either food or fodder crops, i.e. those directly involved in in feeding humanity in one way or another. Uh, I think just this sheer number of crops um, 
itself is is something which is is interesting to, and to a lot of people probably comes as a bit of a surprise. But of course, many of these crops are are greatly underused. Uh, they're not well characterized. They're not widely grown. We perhaps don't know very much about them. Uh, and I think this study, in a way, does begin to bring together this data on such a wide range of crops, some of which may never be important, but some of which perhaps now are just becoming important or are likely to become important in the future with climate change. And the report points out, for example, that a number of the traditional sort of sorghum and millets and things, that, that some of these, these crops that are very drought resistant or, or resistant to high temperatures, um, could become much more, more important in the future. And I think it's very good to have a study that begins the process of, uh, of trying to sort of understand this broad breadth of, of, of crops, what we know about them, what we still need to learn about them, and what their potential contribution might be in the future. Well, I was wondering, you know, where do you see the future of research and conservation in this field going? Are there any elements of research right now that you're really excited about where you think we might find some? The trend that we've seen over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years is a growing recognition that we're not just dealing with the genes that are, are contained within the cultivated forms, that increasingly we're able to use modern uh, genetic techniques to make use of the genes that are found in related wild species. And in a lot of cases, the wild relatives of our cultivated crops uh, are perhaps more resilient uh, in some ways. Some of them have uh, resistance to, to pests and diseases that, that isn't found in our cultivated species and so on. So that I think one of the things I'm finding increasingly exciting is, is the work that's being done with these crop wild relatives and the, the conservation work that's, that's bringing them into the gene banks where not only do we see them being conserved, but also we can characterize them and begin to use them uh, for improving the varieties that, that we, of, uh, of crops that we have. That's great. Um, for the listeners out there, can you tell us a little bit more about what a crop wild relative is and how, how are those found um, to begin the research process? Take a, an example, wheat. Um, wheat is not just something that occurred and has always occurred as wheat. It's um, If you trace it, it back sort of to its origins for sort of some 10,000 years, what we find is, is sort of wild grasses. And it's the the action of of humanity in 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 selecting those grasses which perhaps produce bigger seeds or seeds that cook well or seeds that didn't didn't fall when they got ripe so they were retained on the plant and over time people selected from these wild plants uh, types <clears throat> that were more suited to their agriculture as it was developing so that they had higher yields better quality etc cetera, etc cetera. But the, in many cases, the original, the original plants from which these were developed can still be found. So you can find a lot of wild relatives of wheat, for example, in the, the Near East region, in West Asia, um, and other areas too, but particular concentration there. And it's by going out and, and finding, and, and there's a, quite a lot of different uh, species that, that have contributed to um, the development of wheat over the over the, the millennia, 
And by going and collecting these and, and characterizing them and finding out what are the traits they have and how these traits can be transferred to the, the cultivated forms, I think that, that to me is an extremely exciting uh, aspect of, of the work as it's been developing. I mean, we, the importance has been recognized for a long time, but the genetic tools to make use of these materials are really only been coming on in, in, in the last couple of decades. And so they're the value of these wild relatives has, has, has increased enormously as a result. That's great. Well, and where do you see the future? Are there are there major challenges? You've mentioned a few challenges already, challenges with biodiversity, um, climate change. What are kind of the major challenges we need to look towards addressing in the immediate future um, to ensure that we have enough food to feed the world? To me, if we're looking at climate change and agriculture, there's two sort of aspects to that that I think we need to be be aware of. One one is the whole issue of adapting to climate change. Um, can we breed crops? Can we find the genes in the wild populations which will enable us to breed the crops that can withstand higher temperatures, that can withstand water logging, that will be resistant to the new pests and diseases that perhaps can stand up to stronger winds and more extreme environments and so on. So adapting our crops through breeding or even just from introducing crops from other areas that where the uh, environment today is perhaps what we would predict it would be here in, in the future. Can we, can we just introduce crops or do we have to breed? And I'll, the answer to that would be both and perhaps including new types of crops as well. That's adaptation. The other thing is how can we make agriculture, how can we reduce the impact of agriculture on, on climate change? How can we, can, we, can we mitigate some of the, uh, the effects? And uh, I think there's several ways there. Agriculture is, of course, a major, major contributor to climate change, and particularly through um, release of nitrous oxide, through its methane production, but also just through 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 um, through carbon dioxide with uh, deforestation and other things. So how can we how can agriculture perhaps um, be be kinder on the environment? How can it produce less greenhouse gases? Well, one thing is to is perhaps get produce larger plants, plants which have larger root systems and perhaps that are able to conserve and sequester more carbon in the soils. Perennial crops. There's a lot of interest in at the moment in trying to look at not just planting crops annually, but having crops that will grow as perennials, and which in turn will mean that more carbon is sequestered. They have deeper and longer-lasting root systems, and so on, and are able to to capture more carbon. There's some interesting cases at the moment of crosses between. Um, cultivated rice and a perennial rice, rice from Africa, Rhizo longus terminata, uh, which, is a, a, which has enabled scientists to produce uh, rice, which is perennial, which doesn't need planting every year. So the plants will come up every year, which is good both from the point of view of sequestering carbon, but also, of course, for holding soils. Perennial crops are, are uh, far less prone to erosion. Other things, re reduction of, of nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is a major cause of, of greenhouse gas release from agriculture, both in the, its production and, uh, and, and its use and its release of, of uh, nitrous oxide from the soil. Again, as 
the uh, the use of food legumes of one of legumes, whether food legumes or forage legumes, which are able to, in association with bacteria, take nitrogen from the air and and uh, put it in a form that the plants can use. That means that these crops require less nitrogen fertilizer, and the following crop in a rotation requires less nitrogen fertilizer. And work is going on at the moment in looking at ways in which other crops other than legumes, maize, rice, sorghum, wheat uh, in particular, can be bred and developed and grown so as they themselves are able to produce more of the nitrogen they need from the air rather than having to be supplied through nitrogen fertilizers. So there's there's many interesting ways in which uh, agriculture can be can both survive and be productive in this changing environment, but also contribute much less to that change process. So we really have to look to the future. And it sounds like, um, you know, this is something in the field that people are definitely doing, thinking about the upcoming challenges with a continuously growing human population and, you know, poor soils and um, climate change factors. So, um do you do you feel hopeful about the future in this field? Um, yes, I do. I do. I think um, we're seeing, um, I think, a, a very broad recognition of the issues, of the challenges, and, and of the the possibilities opening up around the world. Um, I'm hopeful that the the agricultural community, uh, and that's both the public and probably increasingly the private sector are are facing these challenges and that there are new tools coming along all the time to help them in that process. So yes, overall I'm optimistic, um, but we are seeing this happening in a world where I think the, the challenges are increasing and, and not just the challenges of climate change, of course, when we're looking at, at these sort of developments, economic challenges can, can greatly impact the ability of private sector to, to, to work, um, security challenges that we're facing in the world today. Um, and many of these sorts of things, I think, are, are, are perhaps going to make it ever more difficult. But I think that the tools are there and the, and the will is largely there that, uh, yes, overall, I'm optimistic. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thank you for listening to Treaty Talks, a podcast by the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. For more interviews and information, visit www.fao.org slash plant-treaty. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. To listen to this and other episodes of the Foodie Pharmacology podcast, head over to foodiepharmacology.com. You'll find links to everything there, including some fun merch. We've also got links to our Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel, where you can find full video versions of the show. Thanks so much to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for putting on a great show for you each and every week. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.